the song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. In his word I put my hope, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, Keep those uh, passages open as uh, we unpack it together. Let me pray as we do that. Our Lord and God, our King and Friend, our Brother and our Redeemer, We pray this morning that as we open up this part of your word that you might speak to us. We pray that you might work in and amongst our hearts and minds, shaping and forming us into the likeness of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, um, uh, I wonder how good uh, you were at hide and seek when you were younger. Kids, anyone here, if we were to have a hide and seek competition... Who's winning? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, yep, okay, excellent. Oh, there's a few there. Okay, when I was younger, um, uh, I used to be, and I think I probably still am, really good at hide and seek, okay? Uh, when I was younger, I used to be um, quite small, well, smaller, and um, uh, I used to have uh, the talent of being able to fit in um, spaces that you would never think a human being would ever be able to fit. And so it was great in a game of hide and seek. Uh, I remember one time uh, when I was kind of seven or eight, hiding in um, one of the kitchen pantry cupboards where we kept kind of just a, a couple of pots. It's like there's the slow cooker pot oh, and our second born child. And, and And so I was hiding in there and I remember laughing, like the smile and glee on my face as um, you could hear each of the other kids be found and then suddenly being like, oh, Jamie's the only one left and them searching and searching and searching and never thinking to look in that drawer. The problem came when I tried to get out of the drawer and suddenly that kind of happiness and glee turned to suddenly fear of I am going to be lost here forever. Kind of three weeks down the track, my mum's going to make go to make a slow cooker and, and she's just going to find me there, right? There was that kind of fear. And so I start calling out and crying out like, Mum, Dad! Right, like I think I'm going to be stuck there. And this is the cry that the psalmist calls out. One where he is completely unable to help himself, right? He is stuck, he is trapped. In fact, the image he uses is one of his sinking, right? And he's unable to escape. He he can't get out by his own willpower. And so he cries out to someone outside of himself. For help. Uh, and let me just 
before we dive into things, and so it doesn't count for sermon time, um, just say in our culture, this is so counter. In our culture, the, the direction that you turn for help is always inward. Okay, if you have a problem with confidence, if you have a problem with self-esteem, if you have a problem with guilt or with shame, or they will turn inwards. Okay, find something within yourself. And yet the scriptures and my experience as well is that when I turn inwards, I find no help whatsoever. And yet it is turning outwards, crying externally out that salvation and redemption and help can be found. And so that's what he does. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry. Right? It starts how so many Psalms start. And yet... The problem here is not one of depression or illness. The problem here is not one of armies or persecution. The problem is actually the psalmist's own guilt. It's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. You see, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Show mercy. And the psalmist is seeking to escape, to flee from his own guilt. And and actually this is, uh, a lot of people would say that's just a common problem of traditional cultures. That um, traditional cultures and morality and religion have, and, and they're not unfair in this, have a lot to answer for, for people's sense of guilt. And um, a feeling of kind of, um, shame. And yet, in the West, we have gone further than any other culture to remove this sense of guilt or moral obligation. We have gone further than any other culture um, in saying, you decide what is right for you and not to let anyone put a guilt trip on you. And yet, no matter how far we run... It seems like we cannot seem to escape these feelings of guilt or shame. Here's what um, Francis, uh, France, uh, France Kafka, the great novelist, and he's not a Christian, here's what he wrote. He said this, he said, The problem modern people have is that we feel like sinners even though we have removed the idea of guilt. said, the problem modern people have is that we feel like sinners even though we have removed, we have been done, we have um, kicked out the idea of guilt. And yet we can't help but feel a sense of shame and unworthiness, a sense of not being good enough or sinking that no matter where we run, it seems to follow. And so the psalmist cries out, 
Lord, if you kept a record of sins, verse 3, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I remember when I was uh, about 8 or 10 years old, uh, my parents um, said that I could go play at my mate Ben's house. He lived uh, just across the road, kind of opposite uh, our house. And uh, back in those days, you could send an eight-year-old out just by themselves across the road. And so uh, that's what my parents did. They said, go go to Ben's house. Um, if his parents aren't there, though, you have to come back. And so I went across the road, and his parents weren't there. And we had the biggest, best game of tip you have ever seen. Ben was there and he had his cousins there and there were no parents. And so we proceeded to demolish the house by playing kind of an absolute freedom game of tip. And we ran everywhere and what happened was, as we were running through the house, I was chasing Ben, I remember this, and um, as he ran through the front door, he swung the door back behind him to kind of slow me down, right? And here I go, running about 100 kilometers an hour, stick out my hand, and this beautiful stained glass door just shatters. And as it falls, I see my life just crumble before my eyes, right? And we're sweeping up this stained glass and I am just filled with this great sense of kind of guilt and shame and just, what have I done? What do I do? And I just remember in this moment, like his parents are due back soon. My parents are just thinking that I'm over here with his parents and and I just say like, I'm going to go back home and tell my parents what I've done. And so I go back home and I walk through the front door and I just remember just being so overwhelmed that I just sat down on the couch and watched TV with my sisters and didn't say anything. And I knew the phone call was coming. Like I remember sitting there as this eight, nine-year-old just kept glancing at the home phone just like it's going to ring any second and yet... I can't tell my parents. And it rings and then my mum and dad call me into the kitchen and I go into the kitchen and they say, do you want to tell us what happened? I just break down. And I remember my dad crouching down in front of me and he looks me in the eye and he says, it's okay. We will take care of it. And then he said words that have stuck with me ever since. And he said, if something like this ever happens again, you come and talk to us. You don't hide from us. And where is it that the psalmist goes? That the psalmist with his guilt and with his shame doesn't run from God and yet that is so often our inclination 
to run from God, but he runs to God. He runs to the judge with his guilt, the one to whom, if he kept a record of wrong, no one could stand, and he goes to him. Why? Because with him there is forgiveness. I remember listening to another preacher and talking on the same point, and he he said this. He said, he said we've got some young boys at the moment, and he said, um, we have had conversations with them, saying, as they're going into teenagehood, that saying there will come a time where you will do something and you will feel like you have gone too far. And you will feel unclean or you will feel ashamed, you will feel just overwhelmed and you will feel like you can't tell us. And he said, you will want to run away from us and I'm telling you now, in that moment when it comes... Run to us, not from us. This is what the psalmist does. And I remember hearing that and going, that is a man who is teaching his kids the gospel. The psalmist doesn't try to drown out his own guilt. He doesn't try to remedy it through either kind of downplaying it or minimizing it, right? Think about the times that um, people have sinned against you, wronged you. How has it gone when they have kind of sought to justify it? You know, if you're anything like me, it, it just makes it feel worse, doesn't it? Kind of like if they just owned it. Where, where you try to minimise it or downplay it, no hope is found. No peace is found. Where you try to remedy it just through distraction, right? That phone is always going to ring. Where you try to deal with it through comparing yourself to others or through misdirecting kind of avenues like anger or self-pity. Anger or self-pity. Neither are models for dealing with guilt in the Bible. And none of these things draw forth the venom from your guilt or shame. Rather, only like the psalmist in crying out for mercy. And so that's what he does. In verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. Verse 6, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Notice this. Notice it's not this ethereal kind of wishful hope. Notice that his forgiveness, he's so confident, he's certain. And here's why. Because of verse 5. 
verse 5. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Not in his feelings, not in his thoughts, not in his circumstances, but in his word. Because here's what I know. When I do the wrong thing, when I have a tendency to be selfish, or when uh, even like 10 years later, I'll still be thinking about it. Right? You'll be sitting on the train and suddenly you remember something you did when you were 16 that nobody else remembers. And you just feel just, ugh. But here's also what I know. That my own thoughts lie to me. And they change from one day to the next. And here's also what I know. I know that my feelings lie to me sometimes. And that doesn't make them any less true or any less real. Sorry, it doesn't make them any less real. It does mean that they might be inaccurate. And it does make them unreliable. And so, if the way that I know I'm forgiven, if the way that I know that I am cleansed, if the way that I know I am washed clean and exonerated and cherished or loved, if all those, the way that I know those things is through my feelings... I will have no sense of assurance. I'll have no sense of stability. I'll have no confidence or certainty. More than watchmen wait for the morning, I will wait for the Lord. Or maybe more fitting this week, more than teenage girls wait for Taylor Swift tickets. I will wait for the Lord. More than five-year-olds wait for Paw Patrol in the morning. More than teachers wait for their seventh cup of coffee. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord. More than watchman waits for the morning. In the second Lord of the Rings um, book and film, uh, there's the battle at Helm's Deep. And uh, they are surrounded and overwhelmed. And it is uh, the fourth night of knowing the army is coming and they are seeking to hold them out and yet they have, like the psalmist, found themselves sinking into the depths. Death knocking on their door, nowhere to turn, no help of salvation. And in what is one of the most famous scenes, Aragon looks up to the window and you know what he sees? The first rays of the dawn shining over the windowsill 
and he remembers Gandalf's words. On the fifth day, on the dawning of the sun, look to the east, and with me shall come salvation. And it is with the rising of the sun, it is with the dawn that salvation comes and that death and decay retreat before its light. And this is why the psalmist waits like a watchman for the morning. And I think there's there's this eagerness here because there's almost this propheticness, right? Because when you look at verse 8, Verse 8, it says, he waits for it. Why? Because he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That the psalmist is waiting for the Lord, literally the Lord, Yahweh to come because somehow he knows because of the certainty and trusting in his word, that Yahweh will come, and when Yahweh comes, somehow he will redeem his people from their sins. That he, despite seeing all of our guilt, despite seeing all of our shame and knowing all of our selfishness, that he will come, And that he'll come towards us, not away from us. And he will redeem his people from all their sins. Let me finish with this. There's a story of uh, a Russian officer who uh, was embezzling money from his troop during um, sometime between the First and Second World War. And... um, it had got to the stage where he was about to be found out. And so in this um, moment where he is overwhelmed with guilt and shame and his kind of sins being brought into the light, he decides that he can't deal with that anymore and that he's going to end it. And so what this Russian officer does is he opens up the books and he places his firearm next to him on the desk and he starts to, to drink to um, for some kind of courage or something. And, and as he drinks, he finds he, he drinks too much and he passes out on the desk. He blacks out. And the Tsar comes in, the Tsar himself comes into the room and he sees the books laid out. And he sees the officer pass out there next to the books and he realises what's happened. He sees it all and then he writes a note on the books and lays his seal on it. And when the officer wakes in the morning, he sees the books and he sees a handwritten message from the Tsar that says, I will make good the debt. And seal on it. I will make good the debt. And the young Russian officer would go down writing himself. He said, 
He saw my heart and my sin to the bottom and still he redeems me. He saw my heart and my sin to the bottom. He saw my guilt for what it is and still he redeems me. And this is why the psalmist, if you notice in verse 7 and 8, goes from just the individual to calling out to the community. So he's kind of talking to God, him and God, him and God, him and God, him and God. And then you get to the verses that Amelie read. And who's he speaking to? Israel, right? So it's more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Then verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from his sins. See what he's doing? He's preaching. He's proclaiming. Because there is a very real sense in which once you have experienced this kind of forgiveness, this kind of redemption, imagine if you were that Russian officer. You could not help but speak, could you? You could not help but speak of it. And neither can we. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might help us as we, as we struggle and wrestle with guilt and shame. We pray that you might protect us from minimizing it or just trying to distract ourselves or, we pray that like the psalmist, we might place our hope in your word. And in doing so, we might go from sorrow to security, from guilt to glory, from despair to delight. And we pray that we might do so for the glory of your Son, and that we might tell of his goodness to others, we pray. Amen.